You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Turn in God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 4 through 9. Our focus today will be on verses 8 and 9. Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. That our thoughts are so often thoughtless. That we allow our thoughts to be steered by this world, by demonic forces, by by lies, rather than taking control and submitting our minds to you, your word and your truth. So grant grace now for your saints. You promise, you tell us Christ is our wisdom. Instruct us by your spirit. Have mercy on us. For the glory of your Son now, we pray. Amen. The heart, head, and hands are all connected. may seem obvious, but many Christians today are a gross caricature of the image of Christ that they're meant to be conformed to, with one of those being exaggerated, the others neglected. Most would probably say they recognize that Christians are to have all three of these heart, hand, and head, but they grossly overemphasize one and distrust the others. Now, giftings and callings can skew things a bit. So, one is gifted to teach, another is gifted to serve, but the one who is gifted to teach should have hands, and the one who is gifted to serve should have a head. Many easily see how a Christianity that's all head could lead to having a big head. Knowledge puffs up, Paul says, but one that's all heart 
can leave, lead to cardiac arrest. And one that's all hand can prove as destructive as it is helpful. Heady theologians think themselves superior to handy ministers. And then the hearty worshipers think themselves better than both. And it goes all around. And such persons fail to see that by emphasizing one of these, they are less a person being conformed to the image of Christ. Now Paul began working out his final point in chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And now he comes to his final thoughts within this final point. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, and so on. Paul dared to command our hearts with that command, rejoice in the Lord. And now he goes on to command our head, think on these things, and our hands, practice these things. There's balance, and there must be balance because you are not a part, you are a whole, made up of parts. There must be balance. Now we could say, that the heart is central in all of this. But it's important to recognize as we look through these things, whenever I say heart, head, and hands, I'm actually referring to things that the Scripture locates every one of them in the heart. So your thoughts, Scripture speak of the thoughts and intent of the heart, your thoughts your affections and passions and desires, and your volition, your will, your decision, all of these heart, head, and hands are things that the Scriptures speak of as belonging to the heart or belonging to the core of us. And and yet I'm making a distinction, I hope you realize, between the three as we're looking at this text. My point is that all these have to do with the core of who you are, and thus they have to do with the whole of who you are. What you think will shape what you do, and what you do largely impacts how you feel. And then how you feel will be huge in impacting what you think and what you do. It goes all the way around. You can't touch one of these without it getting at the others. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your Soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, Mark 12, 30. With all the Christian life, the theme of this letter, what you're seeing here, I hope in vivid colors, the Christian life is something that demands the whole of you. Not a part, all. The first command we take up, verse 8, is a call to think. Many evangelical Christians find calls to seriously think, seriously think unthinkable. It's alien to their concept of Christianity altogether. Or it's low priority. R.C. Sproul writes, we are living in a period of church history that may be classified as mindless. It is anti-intellectual, an anti-intellectual period of Christian history, not anti-scientific or anti-technological or even anti-educational, but anti-mind. While teaching in a seminary classroom, I would sometimes ask a student what he thought about a particular position. The student would sometimes respond, I feel that statement is incorrect. Does that not resonate with much of our discourse? 
I feel that statement is incorrect. I would stop him and say, I didn't ask how you felt. I was inquiring into your I wasn't inquiring into your emotional response. I was asking what you think about it. In the 18th century, theological liberalism ate like a rust away at the steel of Protestant orthodoxy. The corrosion began at her educational institutions, her seminaries and her schools. Those that were instructors there wanted to gain the accolades of their secular counterparts, and so they began to compromise on things like creation and the virgin birth. And in response to this, fundamentalism emerged, committed to the fundamentals of the faith. But it soon began to take on an anti-intellectual bias. You couldn't, dis- you couldn't trust the mind, as evidenced by Princeton and other seminaries that gave way on these things. And so that would grow to such a point that the evangelist Billy Sunday would one day say, if I had a million dollars, I'd give 999999 to the church and one dollar to education. Now, there's something about that that I really resonate with. The problem is, with, with it is how simplistic it is. While fundamental, fundamentalists champion the truth and thank God that they did, their biased, uh, bias against the mind meant that their their, while their hearts, they thought, swelled, they suffered from an enlarged heart while their growth was stunted and they proved unhealthy. So you see how as distant as you might think fundamentalism and the seeker-sensitive movement are, you don't have to watch a whole lot of fundamental Baptist preachers and compare them to a seeker-sensitive church to realize they both suffer from this common malady of an enlarged heart. It's all about the emotions and feelings and thought is bypassed in both of them to go directly at the heart. Emotion, experience. The apologetic depth of fundamentalism whenever it goes full-blown anti-intellectual can be seen in this. You ask me how I know he lives... He lives within my heart. And compare that to the emotional kind of uh, manipulative songs that are of, you know, one, one line sung over and over again within a seeker-sensitive church. And you see it's the same malady in each of them. And this is why the fundamentalists found, uh, why they were shy of C.S. Lewis, why they wouldn't trust him. Because whatever his shortcomings were theologically, and he did have shortcomings, Whatever they were, he was balanced and he was wholesome. He didn't have his theology all squared away in each of these areas. But he realized the need of balance. A a person who is all head and has his theology straight will never be as healthy as a person who gets some of the theology wrong. But at least you can give them this. They're balanced. That will always be the more wholesome, wholesome Christian saint. You need all of these. Lewis wrote, Christ never meant that we were to remain children in intelligence. On the contrary, he told us to be not only as harmless as doves, but also as wise as serpents. He wants a child's heart, 
but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable as good children are, but he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert at its job and in first-class fighting trim. God is no fonder of intellectual slackers, he says, than of any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But unfortunately, it works the other way around. But fortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity itself is an education. That is why an uneducated believer like Bunyan was able to write a book that has astonished the whole world. Lewis lost a lot of academic credibility because he was so openly and outspokenly Christian. And so I hope you see with this that this is not a call that necessitates degrees and credentials and accolades or cultural sophistication. Despite the fact that some will read this list and wonder if there's anything distinctly Christian about what Paul is calling for here. In verse 8. The reason why they would say that is. This is influenced by Greek culture. It's Stoic philosophy. It's Plato's four cardinal virtues. Temperance, prudence, uh, courage, and justice. And everything that they worked out from there. It's it's Greek philosophy. There's nothing distinctly Christian. Just read verse 8 all by itself. There's nothing distinctly Christian about it other than that Paul says brothers. Well, here's the problem with such thinking that Paul is borrowing this. They will accuse the Bible of doing this time and time again. Oh, this writer is borrowing from Greek culture or or some other kind of culture at the time. Too often whenever Bible scholars say this, the question they fail to ask is, who borrowed from whom? Whenever this world stumbles onto truth, from where did they get it? Whenever this world steals truth, and even the world might have recognized some kind of truth before the saint does, but whenever the world steals truth, if the saint comes along and grabs it, he's only taking it back to return it to its proper place. The specifically Christian nature of this command is easy to see if you'll just remember this, that this command is in this letter. And then further, I've argued that the heading over this portion of Philippians is rejoice in the Lord. So this thinking is to be working out a rejoicing in the Lord. And even if you don't buy the way that I've argued that this passage is structured at this point, it doesn't matter because Paul has said rejoice in the Lord always. So whenever you are thinking on these things, that kind of thinking is to be an expression of rejoicing in the Lord. Your spiritual head is to operate using blood drawn from your spiritual heart. It's to be an expression of joy in Christ. We need to remember that this is the same Paul who said, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are slaves of Christ, dear ones. Not even your thoughts 
are your own. They are all to bow before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 2, Paul commands, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you're to think on these things, you need a renewed mind. A renewed mind conformed to Christ. Colossians 3, 2, Paul commands, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. 1 Corinthians 1, Christ is our wisdom. So yes, this is a distinctly Christian command here. Our thoughts are guided by Christ's apostle to think on these things. Now before we get into the list itself, what are these things? First, let's just get at where are we to find these things? If they fit this qualification, where do you find them? God has two books where you can learn them from. He has a big book and he has a small book. And the paradox is that the small book speaks of greater glory than the big book. But you can gain all these things from both of these books. The big book is creation. The small book is the Bible. Now, some would say that we should prioritize the Bible because it's infallible and it doesn't err. Now, I would say there is a reason to prioritize the Bible, but recognize this. You don't prioritize the Bible because it is infallible and doesn't err. That's true. But creation is infallible and doesn't err either. Man errs. Creation isn't telling a lie. Man is reading a lie into it. God Declares His glory through His creation and His Word. Ignore neither. Although, here's where we began to see something of why we would want to prioritize the Word. Reason number one, I'd say, is because it's easier to twist and pervert God's picture book than it is His Word book. It's always easier to speak about the author's intent if you're talking about a picture and manipulate that to fit your own desires than it is with words. Because then you have context. Then you have things that begin to war against your manipulating it to say whatever you want to say. Creation declares God's glory. Scripture declares God's grace. Now, Scripture does speak of His glory, and, and creation does testify to God's grace as well. But there's a, there's a kind of distinction I hope you're seeing there. The message of God's salvation for sinners, is spoken of in His Word. And it not only speaks of that salvation, it accomplishes that salvation. This is a reason to prioritize the Word. Paul tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient. It's all you need. So don't be shy to look for these things in God's world but always do so looking for them through the lens of God's Word. Otherwise, you know, won't know whenever you're looking at what you should be looking at in this world. Prioritize the Word as the lens through which you read the world. So think on the sunset. But whenever you think on it, Think on it as being spoken by your Father, sustained by the Son, and carried along by the Spirit. So think on ice cream. 
Think on it with your tongue. It's so much more fun to think on it that way. Relish the flavors and give thanks to God knowing that God said, 1 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, that whenever such is received with thanksgiving, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now for the list itself. First, know that it's not exhaustive, but suggestive. This isn't an exhaustive list. It's a suggestive list. And also with that, it's not categorical, but perspectival. It's not as if you, here's a thought, and does it fit? Yes, it fits this category. No, you pick up a thought, and you could put it under multiple headings. Every one of these headings, as you consider it from a different angle. But nonetheless, it's helpful to take each in turn. So whenever you take up any thought worthy of thinking, you can put it under any one of these. These are all just perspectives from which you can consider the same thing. But get into it. You'll see this more, I hope. Whatever is true, Romans 1 tells us that the truth of God is something we sinners are born suppressing. It's the truth that creation is screaming at us. The glory of God. And we suppress this truth. But by His grace, God has spoken to us in His Word. He's spoken by the gospel of Christ to call us out of darkness and into light. And in so doing, we recognize that Jesus is the truth. Truth is not something that exists independently of God. It's not some standard that God conforms to. He defines what is truth and what is false. He Himself is the standard. There is truth because there is God. If there was no God, there would be no truth. Jesus prayed to His Father saying, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God speaks like God. He speaks and His words are truth. They determine truth. And this qualifier, whatever is true, should distinguish the kind of thinking we're being called to from the positive thinking of Norman Vincent Peale. Sometimes the glass is empty. You can say half full and half empty, but there's no way to put a spin on the glass being empty other than to say my belly is full, maybe. But the point is, you're not called to think positively, you're called to think truly. This does not mean that we're downers at times, it means we're realist. And we rejoice always, but our joy is not in this world. And this world is going to hell. Our joy is in our Lord, who will make all things new. Positive thinking is not only wishful, it's idolatrous. And true thinking is not only factual, it's worshipful. And to whatever degree your thinking fails to be worshipful, it's less true. There are some lies that have tainted it. Whenever the most simple saint looks at the stars and he thinks, God made those, he, and, and that goes no further, he knows deeper truth about the heavens than that NASA bloke who thinks that the universe got indigestion and belched it out. And yet, whenever that simple saint 
learn some of the truth which that NASA bloke has stolen, he can grab it and put it in its rightful place and say, how great thou art. Whatever is honorable, we are to turn our minds to that which is respectable, noble. Noble is a word that's been mangled by the nobility. But we should determine what is truly kingly in reference to the king. You begin to see how the true then bleeds over into understanding what is honorable. How do we understand what is honorable? We look at the standard, the truth of what honorable is, what just is, what noble is to our king. Outside of God's holy and inerrant word, the place where I've learned more about what nobility means, seen it fleshed out, is in Narnia. I would encourage you to live there. Visit it often. Know that the imagination is fertile ground for thinking, especially on filling out definitionally what these things are, putting flesh on them, making them tangible. As Indy Wilson says, stories are soul food. They are catechisms for our soul that guide our hearts to love what is noble as we think on it. Narnia taught me that Jadis, the white witch, her, her appearance of nobility is only a skin-deep sham. Whereas the sheared lion lying dead on the stone table shouts nobility, regality, magnanimous kingship. In his book, What I Learned in Narnia, Douglas Wilson says, nobility means dedication, loyalty, humility, and sacrifice. Giving yourself away to others. But it also means doing this joyfully and merrily. It is not noble to give yourself away in a sad, gloomy sort of way. And so you have old King Loon, who I think just oozes what it means to be noble, honorable, whenever he tells his son, this is what it means to be king. To be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. That's nobility. Whatever is just concerns that which is proper and righteous. Just and justice are words that many today are trying to make more meaningful by modifying them, adding some adjective. But as soon as you try to modify justice, all you have left is injustice. There is simply justice. Something is either just or it's not. Add any modifier and you've twisted and perverted it and you've got injustice. And so social justice so often proves to be Marxist injustice. Now, are there people who use that kind of label to speak of justice? And there are times whenever they use that label, but they're not, there's not another kind of justice other than justice. Racial justice so often proves a cloak for racial injustice, racist injustice. Putting injustice in reverse doesn't mean, hey, now we've got justice. It means you're just running over different people. Repent of injustice and get out of the truck. 
that so many worldly philosophies have made such inroads into the church in these regards testifies that we have reflected far too little on God's holy law. Justice. Our concept of justice must be determined by the word. You can see justice by looking at it in the world, but you won't know you're seeing it unless you have the standard of God's truth through which you're looking. Too often, what's happened is we're looking at the world to form our concept of justice and then reading it into the Word rather than gleaning it from the Word to then see it and understand it in this world. And the conscience is of some aid to you here, but like your intellect and your, your affections and your will, your conscience is bent and twisted and fallen with the rest of you. You serve the God of justice. He is the judge. He is the standard. So let God be true and every man a liar. Whatever is pure, undefiled, unpolluted, not corrupted. Paul told Timothy, keep yourself pure. This is a matter of thought and affections, emotions. As much as it is about anything you do, keep yourself pure pure. Jesus said everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see how the mind, heart, and will are all involved there? Anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, there's the will, there's a choice and a decision. Lustful, there's passions. And in that, there's the mind operating on that thing as as a muse. Keeping yourself pure foundationally involves your mind and your heart before it has anything to do with your hands and what you do. And because you can't go out the heart directly, you can't say, don't feel that way. Foundationally, the battle for purity begins with your thoughts. And in this regard, I've found Paul's injunction in Romans 16, 19 to be convicting and helpful. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Not just ignorant of what is evil, innocent as to what is evil. And wise as to what is good. Think on these things. There is information. There are images There are facts that to simply introduce them into your mind is to pollute it. There are large swaths of pop culture that the saints should be blissfully ignorant of. Now, all I've said is is necessary to obeying this command to think on whatever is pure, but notice that our text is calling us beyond pure thinking to thinking on the pure The saints should think of their sins in pure ways, repentantly and hating and abhorring them, seeing them in the light of God's truth. The saints should think on sin in pure ways, but they they should also dwell on righteousness. And I think you're not going to do this, this first one, thinking on your sins in a pure way, unless you're first thinking on the pure. 
And then you will see how unclean those things are. The way to keep a clean mind is to think and dwell on clean things, those things which are pure. Don't ask yourself simply, is my thinking pure? Ask yourself, am I thinking on things that are pure? Whatever is lovely refers to things that are agreeable and pleasing. And so, aesthetics, art, beauty, rhythm, harmony are not simply permissible thoughts for the saints. They are required, necessary, commanded thoughts for the saints. We have an objective standard. Now, there's some kind of subjectivity to this in a small sense, but we have an objective standard by which we can evaluate things as whether or not they are truly beautiful. We can determine, because of God's truth, beauty. Not only are we able to distinguish the lady wisdom from the harlot folly, we are then able to distinguish because of that the wise lady from the foolish harlot. And despite any guises of beauty, we can recognize which one is more truly attractive. Evil is easy to paint. Stephen King pulls that off again and again. Look at, look at uh, any kind of film. Why is it thought that um, by so many artists and, and in every sphere that the dirty, the polluted, the corrupt, the evil is, is genuine and authentic and real? And they portray it and they portray it easily. But how, how they, they think of the good, the righteous and the true as, as somehow inauthentic, a sham, uh, um, fake, uh, not real, not convincing, inauthentic. And, and part of it, I think, is they're just covering over their own inabilities. They cannot portray it as being real and authentic and true. In this way, Lewis and Tolkien stood out. They stood out because they thought on these things. They could not just portray the true and the good. They would portray the true and the good as beautiful and convincingly so. And so just one example. Consider Tolkien's description of Gimli the dwarfs being in awe of Gliadriel the elf's beauty. What gift would a dwarf ask of the elves, said Galadriel, turning to Gimli? None, lady, answered Gimli. It is enough for me to have seen the lady of Galadriel and to have heard her gentle words. Hear all ye elves, she cried to those about her. Let none say again that the dwarves are grasping and ungracious. Yet surely, Gimli, son of Glowen, you desire something I could give. Name it, I bid you. You shall not be the only guest without a gift. There is nothing, Lady Gladriel, said Gimli, bowing low and stammering. Nothing, unless it might be, unless it is permitted to ask, nay, to name a single strand of your hair, which surpasses the gold of the earth as the stars surpass the gems of the mine. I do not ask for such a gift, but you commanded me to name my desire. He goes on to speak many times of her surpassing beauty. 
And Tolkien does things like this again and again, portraying beauty that's pure and good. And what's more astonishing is after portraying this beauty that's pure and good, he can portray someone appreciating and delighting in that beauty in a pure and good way. Not tainted by any kind of sensuality. The Catholic philosopher Peter Kraft has written that beauty is the bloom on the rose of goodness and truth. The child conceived by their union. And thus it is not only good, but heavenly. Saints, I I think you understand this because you have read God's Word. And as you read God's Word, you see not only is this thing, as it's speaking to you, not only is this thing true, but then you see it's good and you see it's beautiful. God conveys not only the truth of who He is, but in those very truths, the glory of who He is. It doesn't just sit in your mind as a fact collected. It awes your heart. The true, the good, and the beautiful, like our heart, our head, and our hands, are wed together. They cannot be separated. Whatever is commendable, This is a call to think on that which is praiseworthy. A different word is used as the final qualification, if there's anything worthy of praise. But the the thought, the idea is nearly identical, so we'll take them together. Think about how much of humanity's thoughts and imaginations are consumed with that which is reprehensible, reproachable, deplorable, sins that Christians would never commit themselves because of how they would reflect so badly upon them. If they did them, they enjoy them by proxy and voyeuristically through others. So, forbidden love, adultery, revenge, anger, rebellion, the occult. Well, these things don't need to be alien to the stories that we tell. But too often the way they're portrayed is in such a way that those things are commended, lauded, praised, rejoiced in. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 5.20 Or if our commending isn't perverted, it is so often disproportionate and and wrongly placed in its emphasis. Why is it that the, the athletic child will receive so much commendation, the academic child less, and the appreciative child barely appreciated at all? What's most commendable? It's not that there aren't things to commend within all of those, but let us be sure we know what is truly commendable in any area of life. What's commendable? Well, to begin with, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely. And to recognize these things and commend them in others, they need to be in our thoughts. I'm afraid this is what we look out in this world and the wrong things are commended. Or at least there's a disproportion, a a wrong priority in our commendation. 
And what I think it reveals is we, we fail to commend and praise rightly because we think too little on and therefore too little of what is truly commendable. We think too little on and too little of what is truly commendable. And for that reason, we don't commend it whenever we see it in this world. Now, having lumped commendable and praiseworthy together leaves us with this qualifier, excellence. Could be translating outstanding goodness or virtue. And so I hope you see one way we could summarize all of this list is think on the true, the good, and the beautiful. Think on these things. This is a command to exercise self-control in the realm of your thought. Your thought life is ground zero in the battle for self-control. If you're going awry in the battle for self-control, you're always thinking of it though in actions and decisions, the battle starts a lot earlier than that with your thoughts. This is a call to be thoughtful about your thoughts, to take care of the thinks that you think. One of my favorite passages from Lloyd-Jones is as follows, have you realized that most of your happiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you. The moment you wake up in the morning, you've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Thinking is inevitable. You're going to think. And here's the scary thing. If you're not mindful about your mind, you can be assured someone else is. If you're not thinking about the thoughts that you think, someone else will be thinking them for you. And never mind the cults or anything false religions or anything out of 1984 and and political powers that would be motivated to cause you to think as they think. Never mind the advertisers and entertainers. There is a much scarier reality at play here. Paul tells us that whenever we were dead in our sins like the rest of the world, Ephesians 2, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He goes on in that letter, speaking of us growing up and maturing in Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Saints, think. Think about these things. Take thought concerning your thought. Bow your mind before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now let me touch lightly on doing. From thinking these things, Paul moves on to doing these things. Some Christians think that the Christian life is all about doing. Christianity is love. Love your neighbor, okay? What is love? Now you got to think. 
woke Christianity, social justice, the social gospel, all put an emphasis on doing. Again, the question is, what is justice? What is love? Christianity is about doing your thinking. And to the degree that you fail to think out properly, you will fail to do properly. There's a particular set of things that Paul wants them to practice. What are these things? Well, they are what Paul has learned and received. What, the, what Paul has learned and received, heard and seen. Or what they've, they've learned and received and heard and seen in respect to Paul. There are two sets there. Learned and received speaks to Paul's teaching. Heard and seen, Paul's living. What Paul has spoken and what Paul has demonstrated, they're to practice those things. Consider this word received. It is a loaded word within Paul's writings. What Paul, what they've received from Paul is what Paul has received from Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So the Philippians receive what Paul delivers, and what Paul delivers is what he himself has received, and what Paul has received is apostolic revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Now, the gospel is not something you do. The gospel is what Christ has done. Yet, because Christ has done this, you do. Remember, Paul has already said, you are to work out your own salvation, And one reason why we don't work it out properly is because before we try to work it out with our hands, we have failed to work it out with our minds. And because we don't understand the nature of our salvation, we start to get the nature of our sanctification wrong, thinking that our doing leads to our saving, is one example. Because we haven't thought about it. Paul's letters are constantly divided into the theological and the practical. And that's the order. Not only chronologically does he present theological first and then the, the practical second. He presents the practical second because logically it flows from the theological. And that's how it's to work its way out in our lives. Now here Paul in this letter, Philippians doesn't follow that division, but all of his commands are theologically rooted and driven. And so just take one example. No comments necessary for you to see it. Philippians 2, 1 through 5. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the promise is that for those who will imitate Paul both in his teaching and his demonstration, for those who will imitate Paul, the peace of God will be with them. Thinking leads to doing, and that doing leads to feeling peace. And that peace then also frees you to do and think better. Chapter 4, verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. When you walk in God's ways, you walk with the God of peace. And when you walk with the God of peace, you enjoy the peace of God. Maybe you see it this way. In the Great Commission, we have a command to do, a command for our hands. Make disciples. But before you get that command, Jesus has made a theological statement upon which it's grounded. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And following this thought that's meant to propel your action, following that is a promise. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do this and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do this and the God of peace will be with you. Whenever the God of peace, whenever you know the God of peace is walking with you, the peace of God that you have in that is that simply God is with you. We know that God is with us if we are in Christ, and we know we are in Christ, living in Christ, if we walk with Christ, if we walk in Christ-likeness. And if we're walking in Christ-likeness, walking in obedience to Christ, we can rest assured that even if we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we go with our Father. path of obedience is always the path of peace. In 4 through 9, you have this series of seemingly unconnected, staccato, rapid-fire commands. You look at them, it seems like a pile of bones. On further examination, you see these bones have been arranged. And you look at them within the framework of Philippians, the letter as a whole, Paul has made the connections for you so that you easily see the tendons, the ligaments, the muscles, the flesh coming over these. And it's left to you, though, to truly connect them, to put them together, to put flesh on them. And if you connect them, the result will be a person, a living person conformed to the image of Christ. Over all these commands is this heading, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And that is a command that the obedience to it thereof requires the totality of you. Not just your affections. It involves your intellect. It involves your volition, your will. It involves your affections and emotions. And obedience to this command will mean obedience to that encompassing command that Paul gave us in 127. To live as heavenly citizens Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Heart, head, hand, wholesome living unto the glory of our God. Put connective tissue to these bones. Live, saints. Live in Christ. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Rejoice in Him with your thoughts, with your affections, with your actions, with the whole of who you are. For He is wholly worthy. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant us grace to be balanced. To have hearts that want to think on Christ and having thought on Christ, to have affections burning for Christ and, and wrapped up within those thoughts and affections that we would want to live for Christ, that whatever we would do, we would do heartily as to the Lord and not unto men and we would know what to do and what not to do because we're thinking on your truth and righteousness. Father, Father, grant grace conforming us to the image of your Son to be balanced and wholesome to love you with all of who we are, to grow in all of these areas, to grow holistically, and to know if we're truly growing in one of these areas, it will mean growth in the other. So bless your word and your spirit to renew us, conform us to the image of your wholesome Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.